Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 10. The book of Mark chapter 10, we continue our study through the New Testament. Now, remember how in our previous chapters, how the Lord, our Lord Jesus, he would go in from town to town and he would teach and he would preach and healings were happening. Demons were being cast out. Miracles were happening. And at the same time, we see something else, how the Lord reveals who he is. But then there's a smaller bubble of intimacy where the revelation gets more deep and deeper and deeper. But then at the same time, we see that those with the hard hearts, the religious establishment, the political establishment, we see the hardness of heart. But then at the same time, we also see how truth is withheld from them. And we also know that how when uh, uh, the, the religious and political establishment they've combined together and they're plotting to destroy Jesus remember in our earlier chapters so we have this backdrop of what's happening uh, 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 geopolitically and then also religiously but the, at the same time we see how our Lord he continues in obedience to our father in heaven hallowed be his name and we see how the Lord continues in obedience to his father you see, and in Mark chapter 10, we begin our study here in verse one. Then he arose from there. This is Jesus. Remember last week we were in Capernaum and now we see here in verse one, then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. You see, Jesus, our Lord, teaching and pouring into the people. And remember, this is not without opposition. Because the religious and political establishment, they're already plotting to destroy Jesus. And in verse 2, look what happens here. The, that, uh, in verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. You see, they came testing him. Now, this isn't like a, a, a legitimate question. I mean, it is a question, but it's not a legitimate question because, you know, a legitimate question would be where they, where they genuinely want to know the answer. I mean, consider like a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old child who comes to you and says, tell me about the Bible, where they genuinely want to know about the Bible. The beautiful, beautiful child genuinely wants to know about the Bible. Tell me about the Bible, he asked. Tell me about the Bible, she asked. And, you know, very, you know, receptive and very curious and wanting to know. But then you take like a 20-year-old a uh, college student, you know, that's been entrenched in the ways of the world and, you know, been liberalized in, in, in education and being taught. And that person says, you know, tell me, what do you think about the Bible? The same exact question. What do you, what do you think about the Bible? And then you say, well, I love the Bible. And then immediately, oh, so you think we should stone people? You think we should stone this person, stone this person. You think we should stone him, stone her. And so you see, it's the same question, but then you see there are motives behind those questions. With like the 10 year old, you know, what do you think about the Bible where they genuinely want to know? But then the college kid, you know, what, what do you think about the Bible? The same exact question. And then as soon as you say, oh, I love the word of God. Oh, you think we should stone? Because they have their motives. They have, uh, you know, ulterior motives where they ask the same question. But here with the Pharisees in a similar manner, you know, they ask this question in verse two. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. It's not a legitimate question where they genuinely want to know. No, they're trying to trap Jesus. And they're trying to trap him in their interpretation of the law. Because remember, in the previous chapters, we already learned what's happening with the religious establishment. They're adhering to tradition of men. And they're calling it doctrine. You see, and this is something that the Lord called them on. 
and the religious establishment, what they were doing, they were adhering in, in their tradition, what they've been passed on from through, through the elders and what is passed on in tradition, they were adhering to something that wasn't even in the texts. They were adhering to something that wasn't even in Torah or the prophets, you see? And so in, in, in that base plate of what they operate in, which isn't even biblical, which isn't even in, in the text, they were using that. And so they asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And it wasn't a genuine question. They're testing him because remember, they want to trap Jesus. They're already plotting to destroy Jesus. So we have to remember whenever you see these interactions with the religious establishment, even the political establishment, there's this subplot where we can look at the surface of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the, the religious establishment combined with the political establishment. But we have this backdrop of knowing that in the underbelly of these interactions, they're plotting to destroy Jesus. You see, and the religious establishment, they can do that by applying the law. But the problem is they're not applying the law. They're applying the tradition of men. And in so doing, they're blind. Now, remember when, when, uh, when Jesus mentioned Elijah from our study last week, where Jesus mentioned Elijah, citing that the, 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 the uh, 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 or showing that the elders and the, the scribes and the religious establishment, they were rightly citing scripture, certain scripture, but they were rightly citing scripture. But at the same time, they were wrong in interpretation of scripture. You see, very important to understand because you know, citing scripture, I don't want to say like, you know, it's a piece of cake to cite scripture, but yes, that's one aspect of our walk as Christians, but at the same time to rightly interpret scripture because the scribes, they rightly cited scripture about Elijah, that Elijah's coming, Elijah's coming, and they rightly cited scripture, but at the same time, they were blind. Why? Because Elijah came, you see? They couldn't discern the scripture to understand Elijah came and Jesus is Messiah, you see? And they missed it completely. They missed our Lord completely, you see? And so the religious establishment in asking this question about divorce, they're testing Jesus. And in verse 3, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And in verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce, a certificate of divorce, and to dismiss her. Now, divorce at this particular time, it, 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 it was way too easy. It became way, way too easy. Not unlike today. Today, we're divorced. Today is way too easy. You know, irreconcilable differences, people like to say. And so what happens? They get a divorce. I don't like the way she does this. I don't like the way he does that. And people get divorces because of their irreconcilable differences. Listen, it's nothing new. It's been happening for a long time. Today, sanctioned by the courts. Then, sanctioned by the courts. Today, sanctioned by the religious. Back then, sanctioned by the religious. Sanctioned by the religious leaders. Sanctioned by everyone and permissible by everyone. And so the religious establishment here, the Pharisees, they're asking Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they were testing him. And then the Lord, our Lord Jesus, he goes old school. He goes to Moses. 
Moses. And so they answer about Moses permitting a man to uh, 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 to divorce his wife and issue and give her a certificate of divorce. And just like today, divorce is way too easy. Irreconcilable differences, irreconcilable differences. And so in verse 5, look what Jesus says. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now, remember, the law is holy, but the law has loopholes, you see? And if you're listening for the first time, or even if you're, you know, if, if, if you haven't heard our study, if you've been walking with us for a while, but you haven't heard our study in the book of Hebrews, go back and listen to the study through the book of Hebrews, because the law has loopholes. It was written that way. Why? It was written that way to make way for the better covenant. You say, how dare you say the, 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 the law has loopholes? How dare you say the law has loopholes? Well, all you have to do is look at the law. Because you look at, uh, uh, in Deuteronomy, they practice the Sabbath. You see, in the book of Joshua, they practice the Sabbath. But then you get to Judges and it's, wait a second, where's Sabbath? Where is their rest in the Lord? You see, and it's like, well, well they, they, they practice Sabbath and we have the, the Sabbath law and we have the promises of God. But you get to Judges and you're like, well, where do we see the, the effectuation of those things? The effectuation of God's promises, especially in our study in First in Samuel. It just so happens we're studying First Samuel in our Wednesday studies. And you, you have all these aspects of the law and the, the statutes and you have the Sabbath. But then you see, wait a second, how is it that Israel has forsaken the Lord? You see, how is it that the Lord has become forgotten in our, in our study in the book of Judges? How is it that the Lord has become forgotten when we have the exercise and practice and application of the law? You see, and the law was made that way because it makes way for the better law. And the better law is the law's fulfillment. And that's the law of Christ. You see. And that's when he, if you've been walking with us for a while, you remember our study in the book of Romans about the law of Christ and the law of faith. Very important to understand, especially when you see that, remember the promises of our Lord until the seed? Remember the stump in the Old, Old Testament prophets, the stump and then the, the root of Jesse? You start to see, oh my goodness, the Lord, he's doing something major. He's doing something huge. And so Jesus, you know, when you know, Moses wrote about Jesus. Now, we haven't gotten to that particular part where, you know, when the, the, the Pharisees and the, the religious establishment were hardcore. We believe in Moses. We follow Moses. We're hardcore. And Jesus responds straight up. He says, how can you? How can you? Because Moses wrote about me. You see? And so Jesus here, he answers, you know, they, they said Moses permitted a man for, to, to divorce his wife, to, to issue a certificate of divorce. And Jesus in verse five, it was because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this precept. And so you see, the law was created with loopholes. 
And, you know, it's, which begs the question, you know, how could something holy have loopholes? Well, you look, you listen to our study in the book of Hebrews and you see that, yes, the law is holy, but it makes way for the, the better law, which is the law's fulfillment and the fulfillment of the prophets. And when you look at the function of the law and the purpose of the law, it becomes easier to understand because we account for the, it is also written. Understanding that the law is a tutor and the law was added because of sin. The law was added because of sin of transgression. You see, remember our study in, in Hebrews and Galatians and even Leviticus. You see, I meant straight up, if, if you and me were, were D students, we're, we're in school. Say you and me, we're in school and we're straight up D students. We understand that, you know, if we're just straight D students, that's not good. But what would happen is we would get a tutor. Now, does this mean that the tutor gets, you know, 100% on every exam? No, the tutor has loopholes. You see, the tutor might get 95%. The tutor might get 98%. But no, the tutor has loopholes. You see, but the tutor is still effective in helping you and me become A students, A plus students. So you and me are straight D students. We get D's across the board in every class, every subject, all every single subject, we got D. You look at the report card, D, 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 boom. And it's like, oh my goodness, we're failing. We need help. So we get the tutor. Now the tutor, the tutor takes the same exam and gets 99%. You see? Because that extra 1%, that's the loophole. But at 99%, that tutor can still help you and me go from D to A+. You see? And it's much like the law. If we were A-plus students, we wouldn't need a tutor. I mean, we need a tutor because we get straight Ds across the board. You know, math, English, you know, <laughs> history and... I forgot all the subjects, but, you know, all the subjects in school, you know, if there's like, you know, eight subjects in school or however many subjects, you know, math and, you know, uh, history and whatever, you know, and it's like straight up D, 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 and we need a tutor. But if, if, if it was A plus across the board, we wouldn't need a tutor. But since we're D students, the tutor was added because of our Ds. And once we become A plus students... We don't need a tutor, you see? And this is what Brother Paul says to Brother Timothy. This is what old man Pastor Paul says to young man Pastor Timothy. How the law wasn't made for a righteous person, but for the wicked and ungodly, you see? Does this mean that the wicked and ungodly are without hope? Not at all. Not at all. It's just like you and me with our D, with our D grade, straight D across the board. D, 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 D across the board. We need a tutor. Does that mean that, you know, okay, we get D, 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 or we're predestined for failure? No, it means we need a tutor. And the tutor brings us to A+. And the law, as Paul says, is a tutor to bring us to Christ. You see? Very important to understand. Now, if you're listening, you haven't listened to our, our Wednesday studies, listen to the other study. It's called the marathon because there are people, there are doctrines today. They lean on the doctrines of men and it's false doctrine because they say, okay, you're a D student. You're predestined for failure. Not only are you predestined to be an F student, you're predestined to get kicked out of the school. You're predestined to burn in hell. It's a false doctrine. 
Calvinism, Reformed, Reformed theology. That's false. It's unbiblical, straight up. Now, if you're Calvinist Reformed, I love you, but you need to repent and come to the real Jesus. And in so doing, go to thewayunderground.com and listen, go to the Reformed Reformed area and you'll understand more because Calvinist pastors say, Reformed pastors say, they're telling Christians to take the mark of the beast and you'll still be saved. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. You do that, you follow them, hello, lake of fire. You're going to burn in hell. You cannot follow these blind guides. You cannot follow them. They're blind. You see? And listen to our study called the marathon. Very important to understand. So we know that the law is the additive. Remember our study in Galatians and Hebrews. The law is the additive and it was added because of sin. Just like you and me. We're D students. We get straight D's across the board and, you know, whatever many subjects. Eight subjects. Say, say 10 subjects. I don't know how many subjects are in school, but, you know, 10 subjects. And we're straight D's across the board. So what do we add? The tutor. Hey, we need a tutor. We need a tutor. You know, this crazy guy over here tells us that we're predestined for failure. This crazy lady over here tells us that we're predestined for failure, that we're going to predestined to get F's and get kicked out of school and, you know, get set on fire. But you know what? They're crazy. They're stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. And so we're straight D students. We need, a, we, we, we need, we need the additive of a tutor. Where's the tutor? The tutor comes in. Now we're D's and C's and B's and then all of a sudden A's. And you figure, well, you know, we're A. We, we did it. No, 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 no. Remember Paul when he says, I don't count myself to having achieved already, but I press forward. So we're at 92% average. So it's like, okay, you know what? We're striving. We want 100%. And so 93%, 95%. You see? And the tutor is at, you know, 98, 99% because not 100%. And the law is still holy. And the law was added because of sin, because of transgression. And, you know, the, the, the law is still holy as a tutor, but there's a function to the law. It was added because of sin. You see? And once you and me were, we were D students and we went, you know, C, B, A, but now we're like 98%, 99%. You know, praise be to the Lord. Look what the tutor has done to help us to get to the A's instead of being in D's. No, to help us get to the A's. And we're going to be at 99%, but then the only, when, when you hit 100%, when you and me hit 100%, we're going to be dead. We're going to be dead. But that doesn't mean we stop striving, you know, at, we're going to be at 98%, 99%, but we don't stop striving. No, we keep striving. And when we hit 100%, we're going to be dead. You see, and praise be to the Lord, because that's how our Lord works, how he shows us these things. But the law is the additive, you see. And this begs another question. What about the people who were born before the law of Moses? You see, because when the Pharisees, they asked Jesus, you know, what about, you know, the divorce? Is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And remember in verse 2, they were testing him. It's not the legitimate question, just like the, the liberal college kid. You know, what do you think about the Bible? Oh, I love the Bible so much. The Bible is so beautiful. Oh, so you think we should stone people? You think we should throw a stone at this guy? You think we should throw a stone at this girl? You see? They're, they ask these questions, but there's not legitimacy behind it because they're trying to trap. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. But And, and the Lord says, well, what did Moses tell you? What did Moses command you in verse 13? And then they answered, yeah, yeah, Moses permitted it. But then at the same time, the Lord, he responds, it's because of you. 
It's because of you. It's because of the hardness of your hearts. You say, wait a second. How could, how could the law be written in such a manner addressing hard hearts? How could these, how could it, the, the, if the law is holy, how could it be written to a people, but yet they still have hard hearts? Well, you just look at our studies where we have the law, we have the statutes, but then you look at the book of Judges, you look at 1 Samuel, and you see, wow, yeah, there's the law, but the Lord has become forgotten. How does that happen? You see? Now, the law is holy, absolutely, but it is a tutor to bring to Christ. You see? What happens when there's no obedience to the law? Well, you know, you see what happens. The Lord becomes forgotten. The priesthood becomes defunct. And then the Lord sends prophets. And then, the you know, what happens is that the people, we haven't really touched on it yet, but we're going to get there. And it's mentioned in the New Testament where the people, they would kill the prophets. They would kill the prophets. Because you have the, you look at uh, uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, they call him, you take all the prophets. Okay, so the priesthood becomes crazy. The priesthood becomes defunct. I mean, you say, how, how dare you say the priesthood becomes it? Because there are laws and statutes for the priesthood. Well, all you have to do is look at the law and the prophets, where you look at uh, Leviticus and you see, wow, this, the law is, it's beautiful. It's so holy. I'm not advocating the law and saying that the law is beautiful, but the law is beautiful. The law is still holy. You look at Leviticus. You look at Numbers in Deuteronomy. Numbers is, is pretty sobering because, you know, you see the application of the law and what happens when it's, there's no obedience to the Lord. But you see Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you're like, whoa, this is, this is holy. And it absolutely is holy. And it's good. And it absolutely, this is a good thing. But then you get to the prophets. You look at, in the law, sacrifice, offering. It's a beautiful thing. And then you look at the prophets, sacrifice and offering. And the Lord says, it's a stench to me. I don't like it. And it's like, wait a second. You look at the law and the Lord desires sacrifice and offering. And sacrifice and offering a sweet aroma unto the Lord. And then you look at the prophets and it's like, wait a second. Sacrifice offering, it's a stench. Sacrifice offering, the Lord doesn't like it. Sacrifice and offering, it is meaningless. What happened? Did the Lord change his mind? Not at all. The people, they changed their hearts. You see? Very important to understand. And we see Jesus as fulfillment of the law, absolutely. But also, fulfillment of the prophets you see and so now that we see that the law is added because of sin wait a second we look back and we wonder what about all those who were born before the law of moses and this is precisely precisely what jesus points to and in verse 6, this is how Jesus, you know, the Pharisees, they straight up said, well, you, you know, Moses permitted it. Moses permitted divorce. And then Jesus says, it was because of you guys. It was because of the hardness of your hearts. But then at the same time, the Lord, he goes old school. He goes old school to Moses, but he goes even older school. He says, 
from the beginning of creation, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You see? What was happening, and it's still happening today, divorce had become easy. Divorce had become way too easy, and it's still way too easy today, where, you know, back in the day, and still today, but back in the day, a man could write a certificate of divorce, a certificate of divorce to his first wife, and then to wife number two, wife number three, wife number four, five, six. But when we look at creation, look at the beginning. How many wives did Adam have? How many wives did Noah have? You see, after Adam, there was the fall. But then after Noah, there was the fall. You see, and this presents a problem to mankind. How do we get fallen man to stand upright once again? You see, while also accounting for the fallen nature post Noah. And that's where we see faith. That's where we see faith. And then after faith comes the law. You see, the law was the additive, remember? And by faith, Abraham, you see, by faith, Abraham. And that's pre-10 commandments. So we have to understand on this timeline of what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do on this beautiful, beautiful timeline. I mean, in our lives, we kind of refer to it as a marathon, but in the timeline of creation, and you see, oh my goodness, what the Lord has done. Beautiful things that have been put in motion, the very things that angels peek into, angels peer into. Remember our prior studies? And it's so beautiful when we understand that, oh my goodness, what the Lord has done and is doing, is still doing to this day, and what the Lord will do. The law is the additive. After faith comes the law, and after the law, and in fulfillment of the law, what happens? Faith again. The law of faith. Remember our study in Romans? And then you see the Old Testament prophets, the, 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 the major prophets, the minor prophets, and New Testament, New Covenant promises of God. When you see the stump, you see the root of Jesse, you see the seed, the seed dies, the seed grows. Remember our study in Romans? But then at the same time, what about the fruit of that seed? And then what about the branch doesn't support the root. The root supports the branch. The root supports the tree. How beautiful is it to, to have these promises of our Lord, knowing what the Old Testament prophets testify, that all of Israel shall be saved. You see? And so we see that when Jesus in verse 6, that God made the male and female, and it's, this is something that, you know, not to get off track, but this is something that's under major, major, major attack today. Major, ma huge attack today. God made them male and female. Very interesting that we don't think you know, about this, you know, major attack about, you know, God making them male and female. We don't see these certain agendas pop up in 1530. 
We don't see these agendas pop up in 1760 or in 1929, but today we see these agendas converging all at once. These agendas that come up against God. You know why? It's because Satan, he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short and he's very effective on the battlefield. And Satan knows that mankind is created in the image of God. And what does Satan do? And the demons, what do they do? They present alternatives. You see? Satan and the demons, they know that mankind is created in the image of God. And anytime Satan sees male or female, anytime the demons see male or female, they hate it. They hate it because they know, hey, mankind were created in the image of God. And Satan, the demons, they hate it. So what do they do? They seduce and they present alternatives. You see? And Satan and the demons, they want people to be created in an image other than God. You see? We could look at the obvious. We could straight up. We look at the obvious. You know, males wanting to be females, females wanting to be male. That's the obvious. But what about the not so obvious? What about body alterations? What about, you know, augmented this, you know, reduction here, filler here, filler there? Seemingly minor. But understand what's on the back of these things. Understand what's on the back of all these changes. Mankind, you, you're created in the image of God. God doesn't make mistakes. You're created in the image of God. You know, sometimes, you know, teenage girls, you know, you, you, oh, look, I'm ugly. You know, oh, my nose doesn't look like this or I got big ears. Oh, look at me. I'm so ugly. I'm so ugly. Listen, God doesn't make mistakes. You're created in the image of God. He doesn't make mistakes. And let me tell you something. He's not done. If you're listening and you're like, you know, oh, I'm ugly. I'm ugly. I need to go to the surgeon so he can change my nose. I need to, I need to go to the surgeon so he can, you know, readjust my ears so they can be, you know, properly placed here. No, what do you mean? Properly placed? God doesn't make mistakes. You are beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. He doesn't make mistakes. And we look at the obvious, you know, where, you know, people want to change their genders and all these different things. But wait a second. What about somebody that looks in the mirror and says, oh, look, I'm so ugly. I'm so ugly. God doesn't make mistakes. God's not done either. You know why? Because there's something in the arena of faith, something in the arena of the unseen and it's faith. You see? When you were in your mother's womb, a little tiny growing baby, and you're in your mother's womb, and God is forming you, putting the bones together, the sinews. All these things are happening. And before you were in your mother's womb, what does the Lord say? I knew you. I knew you. Remember when we, we, we look at the book of Hebrews and we look at the, the priesthood before the priesthood was even established? How is that possible? 
How is that possible in the realm of mankind, in the realm of the flesh? It isn't possible in the realm of the flesh. And so the Lord, he gives us these greater teachings than the ways of the flesh. And in order to have this understanding, it requires faith. Men, have regard for your seed. Remember the loins of Abraham? The beautiful things that were in the loins, the priesthood in the loins of Abraham when the priesthood wasn't even established. Men, have regard for your seed. And so in your mother's womb, you're formed and you're born into Adam, a fresh boy, a fresh girl. You're born into Adam. And it's so beautiful, a fresh baby boy, fresh baby girl. And then at the same time, baby boy grows up, baby girl grows up. And then there's something else that now requires your involvement. Where before, I meant when, you, when you're in your mother's womb, you're not doing anything. It's just kind of, you know, happening. But now something else happens and it requires your involvement. And what is that? It's the good news. It's the good news that God so loves you. Not willing that any should perish, that God so loves you. This world is falling apart. It could be looked at that way, but when you look at Bible prophecy and you understand the promises of God, the timeline of how the Lord works and the things that the Lord is going to do, has done and is going to do, you see that the Lord, it's a straight up rescue mission. Jesus Christ is the ark of our time. You see, and God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's straight up paradise where you see the tree of life in, in, in Genesis. Don't eat. Don't eat from the tree of life. You look at Revelation. Hey, here, eat tree of life. And praise be to the Lord. And the only way that happens where you and me can feed from the tree of life, the only way is through Jesus Christ. And so, like, here you are in your, in your mother's womb, and you, you, I mean, you're not, you know, putting yourself together. It's just kind of happening. Things are in motion. And then you're born. You come out of your mother's womb. You're, a, you know, you got the diapers. You got the bottle. You crawl. You walk. You learn to run. And here, here we are. For such a time as this, here we are, you and me. Here you are, listening to my voice. And you understand that, yeah, you know, you you were in your mother's womb a certain time, depending on how old you are. Maybe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was 20 years ago. Maybe it was 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. You were in your mother's womb. And for such a time as this, here we are, your path and my path, it crosses. For such a time as this, for you to hear that God's not done with you. The Lord, he's not done with you. But it requires your involvement. And when you believe that, oh my goodness, you know what? I do have sin. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, I need a savior. And yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, that also evokes a response. And you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ. 
And if that's you and you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ, or even if you're a Christian, but you're wishy-washy and you're lukewarm, you need to recommit your life to Christ. If that's you, you want to commit or recommit your life to Christ, hit pause, listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ and commit your life to Christ, recommit your life to Christ and no more milk. Don't drink milk anymore. I mean, if, if you're recommitting your life to Christ, you know, don't drink milk anymore. But if you're committing your life to Christ, you know, you're going to need milk. There's going to be a period of time where you need, you need milk. Because what's happening is you're born again into Christ. Just like when you were born in your mother's womb. Not a lot. Not, I can't even say not a lot of involvement from you because you didn't do anything. It just happened. But you commit your life to Christ. You recommit your life to Christ. You know what that is? That's called being born again. Being born again. And if you're a new believer, that means that you're going to have a period of time where you're on milk. But you're not going to stay on milk. If you've recommitted your life to Christ, listen, no more milk. The, the days of milk drinking, let those be over. And you commit your life to Christ. If that's you, you also listen to the studies about growing and maturing in Christ. Go to thewayunderground.com. And go listen to the studies about growing and maturing in Christ. It's there to help you. So that you can grow and understand in the framework of what happens in the pneumos. So that you can grow, mature, and become deadly. The good deadly. And that's how the Lord works. You're born into Adam. Born in the ways of man. Born in the flesh. But when you commit your life to Jesus Christ... That's called being born again. And let me tell you something. That, it's of the Spirit. You see? And you can see the spiritual warfare happening because in the demonic realm, Satan and the demons, they know that mankind is created in the image of God. And they know that their time is short. They know. And so they look at people and they say, oh my goodness, look at all these people. Look at all these images of God. We hate it. We hate it. We hate it. We hate it. And instead of just saying, hey, let's kill them, they, they do it slow. And they say, oh, we hate it. All these images of God. We hate it. We hate it. And so what do they do? They seduce. Hey, you don't like your nose? You see? Oh, you, you, know, you, oh, you don't like your weight? Oh, you don't like how you're skinny? Well, you don't like the placement of your ears. And they get people to think that, oh, God made a mistake. They get people to think like, oh, you know what? There is no God. They get people to think like, oh, you know what? God made a mistake. Instead of male, I'm female. Instead of female, I'm male. And that's what the demons do. And it's, you know, ultimately, it's to, to pull away from God. You know, ultimately, it's to destroy. Ultimately, it's to kill. You know, lake of fire. Ultimately, it's for that. But it's baby steps. You see? That's what they do. They seduce because they look at the people and they see like, wow, look at all these images of God. And then they go out and they seduce and they try to change that. Spiritual warfare. Because they know their time is short. They know exactly where they're going. They're going to the lake of fire. And they know that God loves creation. So it's not necessarily an attack on you. It is an attack on you, but it's an attack on God. Because God loves his creation. 
God loves his creation and they want to hurt God. Satan and the demons, they want to hurt God by attacking his creation. You see, where are the shepherds? Where are the pastors? Where? You see pastors, oh yeah, come to church. We're going to sing Kumbaya. We're going to have, you know, nice, nice little fellowship, you know. We're going to go grave soaking. We're going to do all these things. We're going to, you know, they treat church like it's a social club. No, it's warrior training. Church is warrior training. Equipping. Equipping of the saints. Training. The work of the ministry. Mankind has created the image of God. And when you see mankind wanting to make these changes, there's the obvious. You know, when, when a guy wants to be a girl, when a girl wants to be a guy, it's like, okay, that, that's the obvious. And, you know, a lot of times the Christians, they kind of go overboard. Oh, that's so evil. That's so evil. And you, yes, you can see in the underbelly of these cultural changes, these cultural shifts. Yes, you can see the great evil. And you can also see the wrath of God because you look at Romans 1. And this is a result. You know, when people forget the Lord, what happens? The Lord also gave them up. Romans 1, the Lord also, 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 the Lord also gave them up. You know what that means? That means that the person first gave up on God. The person first gave up on God. And what do we see in the Old Testament and New Testament? God is reactionary. You see? When you see mankind wanting to make these changes, the obvious, you know, when male wants to be female, female wants to be male, there's that. But what about when a person looks in the mirror and says, oh my goodness, I'm so ugly. I need to change my nose. I need to call my surgeon so I can, you know, change my ears, get some filler over here. Augment this, reduce that. Cut this, cut that, you know, little nippy-tucky over here and that and this. And it's like, wait a second. And you see old people, you know, they do the fillers, you know. And, you know, it's like. It... And the, what's happening, what's on the back of these things, it's a seduction. Let me tell you something. If you're old and wrinkly, that's beautiful. If you're male and you're old and wrinkly, that's beautiful. If you're female and old and wrinkly, that's beautiful. The Lord doesn't make mistakes. When you see these desires of people, oh, I want to change this, I want to change that, I make you know some adjustments here and you know uh, tuck this and you know nip over here and liposuck this and all these different things, it's like, well, that's a seduction. And who would suggest such a thing? And you look at the pneumos and you see these tactics of our adversary, the tactics of the demonic realm that are deployed on mankind and they're winning. They're winning. And they're winning for a reason. You look at our culture. You know why they're winning? It's because salt has lost its flavor. You see? Look at the convergence of these prophecies. Of course, there's the obvious. 
There's what we see in the physical realm, you know, the Euphrates River is drying, you see the rise of Magog, the, the nations of Magog coalescing together, you see all these signs in the physical realm, prophecies in the Bible. But you look at the pneumos and you look at these prophecies in the Bible of Satan knowing his time is short and the demonic realm on the rise. And you see, uh, you know, how salt has lost its flavor. You look how apostasy on the rise. You look at you know, the, the downfall of culture and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. When we say that we're in the last days, it's not just a willy nilly thing. It's because look around us. Look around you. You can see it. Salt has lost its flavor. The apostasy, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And where you see the apostate, you see salt that has lost its flavor. And we'll put it to you another way, a very sobering way. That we're in a fierce war. We're in a very fierce war. And it's a war that's going to be lost. A very fierce war. And it's going to inflict massive, massive casualties. And it's going to be lost until evacuation at the very end. Remember our study in the Thessalonian letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians? Until the evacuation at the very end. This is what happens when we account for the many, many, many it is also written. Remember, it is written in Revelation that Satan and the demons, they're going to prevail against the saints. They're going to prevail. You know what that means? They're going to have victories left and right. And Jesus is the one that says no flesh will be saved, even the elect. No flesh will be saved, even the elect. That's how bad it's going to be. That no flesh will be saved, even the elect, unless, unless those days were shortened. You see? And too many times you hear Christians and they say, oh, you know, I've read the ending and in the end we win. No, 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 that's inaccurate. I've read the end and in the end we win. No, biblically in the end, mankind, it's on its way to destruction. Even the elect. And it's a remnant that is saved. That's the evacuation. Remember our study in 2 Thessalonians? And then God fights. And God wins. People say, oh, Christians, you know, know, I've read the ending and in the end we win. No, in the end, God wins. The question is, who's with them? And that's the remnant. Very sobering realities, very sobering truths. And a lot of Christians have improper understanding. Why? Because they have dumb pastors. People at the pulpit who have no business at the pulpit. Men and women at the pulpit who have no business at the pulpit. The Bible gives us very specific criteria for who is qualified to teach from the pulpit. You see, very important to understand. And if you're listening, you're a Christian, you're listening and you're like, well, wait a second. I thought we were supposed to be raptured out of here. Listen, the rapture, it is a biblical truth. The resurrection, it is. Remember, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So what does that mean? There's more. Who's the more? Well, that's the believer. 
Oh, but my pastor says the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. Well, listen, go and listen. go to thewayunderground.com and go to the prophecy area and listen to our studies on the rapture. Very, very important to understand. I mean, it's all important, but very important to understand because there's a lot of Christians who have been seduced into believing that, oh, you know what? We're not going to be here. And I've spoken to some Christians and some of them, they even want to commit suicide because they say, oh, my pastor said I wasn't supposed to be here and I see the world falling apart. And does that mean that everything I believe is untrue? Does that mean that the Bible is fake? Does that mean that Jesus is fake? And Christians tell them, hey, listen, don't pull the trigger. Don't kill yourself. The problem is, you know, yes, Jesus is real. Yes, God loves you. And yes, you know, we, we abide in Christ. And yes, he's coming. But you have a dumb pastor. You have a stupid pastor who told you, taught you wrongly that it was going to happen before the tribulation. No, that's biblically inaccurate. You see, don't kill yourself. You have Christians, you know, they're entering crazy town. They're losing it. They're becoming psychotic. Because they say, oh, you know what? We weren't supposed to be here. We weren't supposed to be here. We weren't supposed to be here. And wait a second. The Bible doesn't teach a pre-tribulation rapture. And then you have pastors. They're getting even deeper and deeper into apostasy. They're twisting scripture to accommodate what they believe, to accommodate their tradition. They're twisting the scriptures. And some pastors are saying, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. And some Christians and pastors, they're teaching and they're believing that, you know, whatever form of the mark of the beast that is imposed by government, it's okay to take. It is okay to take. Why? Because we haven't been raptured yet. Whatever form that takes in the world, if the government says, hey, you can't buy or sell unless you put this on your forehead. You can't buy or sell unless you put this on your hand. You inject this into your body. You do this. Government mandates. And there are Christians who believe, well, my pastor told me that it's okay to take because if that happens, we're still here. We haven't been raptured yet. You see? It's a very dangerous game. It's deadly. You have the wrong pastor? Hey, you, need, you cannot submit to that guy. Oh, but my pastor's female. Even worse. Wrong formula. You can't submit to female pastor. And so if you're a believer and you believe in, in pre-tribulation rapture, go and listen to our uh, studies on prophecy. Very important. We're living in the last days. It's serious business. You see? I mean, you know, there are certain things that are happening. And when you hear us say, you know, when you have a church that meets the qualifications that the Bible indicates, always accounting for babies always 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 accounting baby for babies because you know you can't have like a, a, a like a, a legalistic fellowship that's wrong it's not carnally motivated it's somewhat organic because it's of the spirit but when you have that i mean pray for that and seek it but if you have that that's very special very special. These are churches that are going to be safe houses in the last days. They're going to be safe houses in the last days. Very important to understand what is happening. I mean, you look at the Old Testament. Remember our Old Testament uh, uh, studies in, in Judges and 1 Samuel? And in our Old Testament studies, you see like, wow, you know, Israel, they lost in the fight. 
They're losing this battle. They're treating the ark like it's a, a good luck charm and then they lose. Does that mean the ark is incapable? Does that mean that the Lord is incapable? Does that mean that the Lord has no power? No, not at all. There is no power higher than the Lord. He is almighty. He is the most high. So if, it, if it's not working, what's the problem? Well, since we know God's not the problem, what's left? It's the people. Wrong formula. You see? And it's the same today. Very important to understand Christians who say, oh, you know, I've read the ending and in the end we win. No, that's not what the Bible says. Because God wins. Who's with him? And when you read the Bible, it is the remnant. You see? It's exactly like our study in 1 Samuel where, you know, we have a pre-knowledge that, that, that things won't turn out well under one king, under King Saul. We have this pre-knowledge that things aren't going to turn out so well for Israel under Saul until David arrives. And it's the same today. Things aren't going to turn out so well for man. Things aren't going to turn out so well for the church, for Israel, until the son of David arrives. You see? But where are the Samuels? Where in the world are the Samuels of our time? See? Same, same, same. Nothing new under the sun. And so we see the Pharisees, they're trying to trap Jesus. And they ask him about divorce. And Jesus, he goes old school. He goes old school to Moses, but then he goes older school. And he goes to the beginning, you see. He takes them to the beginning and points to man and woman, male and female, you see. And then he continues here. Look at verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. For this reason, verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And this is a big problem today, a huge problem in the world and in the church. And to my brothers in Christ, my beautiful, beautiful brothers in Christ, I love you, I love you, I love you so much. More than you know, I love you a lot. But let me tell you something. I'm kind of sick of men. I'm kind of sick of men, straight up. Because you look around and what do you see? You see guys, they call themselves men, but they're little tiny boys. They call themselves men. You know, they got the big muscles. They got the beards. They got the hairy chest. They got the deep voice. But they're little tiny boys and they refuse to cut the umbilical cord. They refuse to put on the big boy pants. Men, if you're married, this is what you do. You look at mommy, you look at daddy, and you say, Bye-bye. Adios. Arrivederci. Sayonara. Mommy, Daddy, I love you. But bye-bye. Sayonara. And you know what happens? You join to your wife. You join to your wife. And in verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh, so that they are, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. You see, remember verse six and seven, male, female, male, female, man, wife, man, wife. That's the formula. Not male, male, not female, female. It's male, female. That's the biblical formula. The question is, who is it that wants to yield to, you know, there's the ways of the world, but who is it that wants to yield to the Bible? 
Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. Who is it that wants to yield to the word of God? This is hate speech. This is, this is considered hate speech in the world today. In some parts of the world, you can get arrested. In a lot of parts of the world, you can get beat up. In some parts of the world, you get killed. In a lot of parts of the world, you know, speech such as this gets shut down. And, you know, I fully expect these broadcasts to be shut down. It's only a matter of time. So when we say, you know, find these fellowships, find the, where the formula is right, very important. Because things are going to shut down, boom, soon. And so you look at husband and wife, the two are no longer two, but one. You see? And when Paul makes his recommendation about marriage, we also remember the better marriage, the better husband. And it's the two becoming one in spirit. You see? Intimacy with Jesus. The better husband, the better marriage, and the two becoming one. You see? And just so you know, a little side note. For me personally, I don't like to talk about marriage. I really don't like to talk about marriage. And I know that seems kind of odd. And sometimes people hear that and they're like, well, that's strange. Why doesn't this guy like to talk about marriage? I'll tell you why. It's because of carnality. Because men expect me to say something about a carnal type of submission. Oh, tell my wife she has to submit to me. She has to submit to me. And then the women expect me to say something about a carnal type of love. Like, oh, yeah, you know, like it's a fairy tale type of thing. You know, like, you, you, you see like Cinderella. They expect me to say Cinderella. Oh, yeah, tell my husband that, you know, he's got to love me. For me, I'm in agreement with Paul. Complete and total agreement with Paul. So that we can serve the Lord. You see? So that we can serve. So we can serve the Lord and keeping our eye on the better marriage and the better husband. And that's Jesus Christ. You see? Remember, marriage unto the bridegroom? That's a pending event. It has not yet happened. It's a pending event. Our marriage, you and me, unto the bridegroom, unto Jesus Christ, the better husband. You see? And in verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a hardcore. Remember, the Pharisees, they just asked Jesus about divorce. They were trying to trap him. They just straight up asked him about divorce. And Jesus, what he does, he goes old school to Moses. He goes older school to the beginning. And he cites that it is also written from Genesis before the law of Moses. I mean, the Pharisees, you know, they're referring to the law, but, you know, their reference to the law, it's not the full timeline of what the Lord has done. It's not the full timeline. They're just looking at, you know, I mean, you have to account for what about before the law? What about Noah? What about Abraham? What about Noah? What about Adam? And so when you account for them, it's like, wait a second. They didn't have law. You see? I mean, they had some laws, but not the Ten Commandments. Remember the, the, the law of circumcision? Very important to understand what the Word of God teaches us. And in verse 9, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let me say something to my sisters in Christ, whom I love. There is no greater love story than you and Jesus. No greater love story than you and Jesus. Prince of Peace, Son of the Most High God. There is no greater love story 
than you and him. And in verse 9, for my sisters in Christ, knowing that there's no greater love story than you and the Prince of Peace. Having that in mind, look at verse 9. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And for my sisters, let not any man separate you from him. The better husband of the better marriage. Very important to understand. As you look at in this spiritual battle that we're in, Satan, he's been he's quite the tactician. He's been very effective against men. Very effective against men. I mean, you look at the men today and you can see. But now Satan and the demons, now they're attacking women. Now they're attacking women. Look at the war on women that we see today. And so for my sisters in Christ, let us fight. You see, the good fight, the good fight, not like, you know, no more tent pegs. You know, if you listen to our study in the book of Judges, no, no tent pegs. You know, we don't fight in those rules of engagement. That's a rules. Those are rules of engagement of one covenant, a covenant of the flesh. But then there's a new covenant, the covenant of the spirit. You see? And the, the Pharisees here, they just ask about divorce and Jesus, he blows them away. Because, I mean, you could read this, I mean, with, with, without the understanding of the Pharisees, you could read this, or you, you, you can read this and, 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 or say, for example, if we were there and we heard what Jesus is saying, it's like, okay, we, I think we get it. We kind of get it. But for the Pharisees who are supposedly in the know, when Jesus goes before the law, when they ask about when, you know, what did Moses tell you? Jesus asked him and then they say, well, Moses permitted divorce. Moses, Moses permitted the certificate of divorce. And then Jesus answers, yeah, it was permitted because of the hardness of the hearts. It was permitted because of you. But then Jesus goes old school and the Pharisee mind, the Pharisaical mind starts to think like, oh yeah, you know, be, before Moses, you know, what about Abraham? What about Noah? What about Adam? The pharisaical mind, supposedly in the know, has this knowledge of, oh yeah. And so they came trying to trap Jesus, testing him. Remember, they, they're they already in collusion. They're in collusion. The religious establishment and the political establishment, they want to destroy Jesus. And you know what's happening? They can't. They can't. I mean, with these tactics that they're employing, they can't. But it's going to get worse. And so in verse 10, look what happens. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about this matter. Very interesting how certain things are said to one group, but then there's greater depth that's shared with the disciples. And the disciples, they want to know more. So in the house, this is later on, you know, in the house, the disciples, you know, they asked Jesus, they asked him again about the matter because they want to know more. And in verse 11, so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I want to say something to those who are married to a person who is not your first spouse. If you're married and the person you're married to is not your first spouse, that's one qualifier. 
The next qualifier is this. If your previous spouse is not dead. That's the second qualifier. So if you're married to a person who is not your first spouse and your previous spouse is not dead, let me tell you something. I love you, but you need to repent. You need to repent because it is uncleanness before the Lord. You need to repent. Hardcore. You need to repent because it's adultery. Accounting for the it is also written that we see in the Bible. Another marriage is okay. Another marriage is okay. But death is required. A person, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm on my second marriage. I'm on my second marriage. But, you know, my first wife, she died. You see, my first husband, he died. And, you know, another marriage is okay. But death is required. And the marriage must be in the Lord. Marriage must be with another believer. So if you're in your second marriage and, you know, your first husband died, your first wife died, and, you know, you're biblically, you're, it's okay to get married again, but you have to marry a Christian. You see, you don't marry Catholic, don't marry a Buddhist. You see, don't marry, you know, the Krishna. No, you marry a Christian. You see. And then with maturity in Christ, you're probably going to be pretty picky about the type of Christian, you know, not like, like, a, like a, 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 a Hillsong Christian. No. Very important to understand what the Bible says. And then we remember Paul's suggestion, how Paul says, well, you know, I, I, you know, it would be better if you stay single. Why? Because there's nobody to please. You see, we can focus on the Lord. We can please the Lord. You see, we keep our eyes on the better marriage, the better husband. You see, and even when Paul makes it in his recommendation, he also says that let, let the married be as though they're unmarried. You know, so oh, cool. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm married, and the Bible says to consider myself unmarried. So does that mean I can go to the bars? I can go to the clubs? No, no, no. That's sin. That's taking advantage of God's grace. That's stupid. That's foolishness. but so that we can please the Lord and work as unto the Lord. The advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom. One body, many parts. And that was a beef that people had with Paul. Like, what does Paul have this, this, these women with him? You know, look at Paul's little bubble. You see Titus and Timothy and all of these women. It's like, and Paul had to write a letter in Rome. He said, yeah, hey, no, this woman, no. Do what she says, you know, with, you see that with Lydia and Phoebe, near Phoebe, you know, a, a deaconess, a worker of the ministry, equipped for the ministry. I can't wait to meet her. And Paul says, no, whatever she says, do it. Whatever she says, do it. You see like a, 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 a like a, a leadership position, but at the same time, it's not pastoral. You see, pastoral is always male. Uh, overseer, always male. And overseer Paul says to the church in Rome, the, the, in the book of Romans, you know, he says, hey, here's Phoebe. But then at the same time, you know, do what she says. Because Phoebe, she's with me. Male covering. You see? Very important to understand. 
You know, if, if Phoebe came to town today, if we were to go back in time in my time machine, you and me, and we were to pick up Phoebe, we pick up Phoebe. Oh, you know, Phoebe, we read all about you. We heard all about you. And praise be to the Lord, we can finally embrace you. And there's a little culture shock there because, you know, like we have different clothing and she has, you know, different clothing. And she's like, you know, what are those things on your feet? We have to explain all oh, these are, you know, tennis shoes, you know, and, you know, so there's that, you know, that, that culture shock. But at the same time, because we're believers, because we have the same formula and the understanding of the same formula, there's going to be a lot of not similarities, but there's going to be a lot of oneness. You see, love feast, like-mindedness. Why? Because we're believers. The formula is right. The formula has been around for 2,000 years, give or take a couple years. The complete formula, it's been around for 2,000 years, give or take a couple years. And so we go see Phoebe. Wow, you know, praise be the Lord. We say, Phoebe, check this out. This is our time machine. And she goes, oh, let me check it out and say, yeah, let's go back into the future. And so all of a sudden we get in the, into the and into our, the time machine. We, we pick up Phoebe and we come over here to the 2023 AD. And we say, okay, Phoebe, let's do what you know, what you were doing in Rome, what you were doing when, you know, let's do that over here. You know how many churches, how many Christians would reject Phoebe? Oh, she's female. Oh, she's female. She can't do this. You see? Oh, she's female. Get Phoebe out of here. Who is this lady? Phoebe, let's get her out of here. She's disqualified. You see? That's what happens. When, when people don't understand formula, that's what happens. I mean, it was happening in Rome. And Paul had to write a letter. Hey, Phoebe, she's with me. You do what she says. She's with me. She's not pastor. She's not elder. But she has a leadership position because Paul says, do what she says. You bring Phoebe to today's world, today's church, no, she'll be rejected. You see? She'll be, ex she'll be accepted with the Lutherans and Episcopals. She'll be accepted. Oh, she's female. Oh, yeah, she will, we'll do what she says. And then Phoebe, she starts to speak and she said, whoa, what? What do you mean? So there's the, the doctrinal. So you, you ex acceptable by the flesh, but then of the spirit, not acceptable. You see, where with the others, it's like, well, wait a second, acceptable uh, 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 in spirit, but not of flesh. You see? And so we have to account for the it is also written, the many, many it is also written. Do you, the Episcopals and Lutherans, oh yeah, female, look, look, yeah, we'll, we'll take her. And so we go in and, and then she starts to speak. It's like, whoa, 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 you're too hardcore. Get out of here. You see? And it's not just a balance. You know what it is? It's just, it's so simple. It's straight up formula. You see? Very important to understand what the word of God teaches us. And so the disciples, they want to know more about this. They want to know more about what Jesus says about marriage and divorce. And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife in verse 11 and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, which is why we pose this very sobering thing to those who are married. And you're married to a person who is not your first spouse. That's the first qualifier, remember? And then the next qualifier is if the previous spouse is still alive. 
he or she is not dead. And if that's you, we got to get you cleaned up. Very specific parameters, what the Bible teaches. Why? Because it is uncleanness. Nothing mangy, remember? Nothing mangy. It's uncleanness before the Lord. It is impure before the Lord. And if this is you, this isn't to say, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you, you know, get out of here. It's to say, listen, that's not good. It's a little love tap. That's not good. But you know what? We got to get you cleaned up. We got to get you cleaned up. You need to repent. Depending on your walk, you may need to recommit your life to Jesus. And if that's you, you hit pause. You listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. And you do exactly that. And you recommit your life to Jesus. Right here, right now. Hit pause. Listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. You do exactly that. Straight up. Right here, right now. I mean, you're listening, you're like, you're, you know, you're on your second marriage and, you know, you got husband number two with you. You got wife number two with you. Maybe you got husband number three or four. Maybe you got wife number three or four and all the previous, they're still alive. Oh, I had irrecon- irreconcilable differences with her. Oh, I had irreconcilable differences with, with him. It just didn't work out. It didn't work out. Listen, that's uncleanness. You see? Now, we don't cite these truths to say that's uncleanness. You're going to burn in hell. No, we say that's uncleanness. Don't burn in hell. We got to get you cleaned up. You see? And then once you're clean, you know what that is? Once you commit your life to Christ, you know what that is? Purity before the Lord. Purity before the Lord. Where you can look at past sin. All of my... You know, Lord, you know, my first and second husband, Lord, my first and second wife, they're still alive. And Jesus just straight up says, I don't see. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I don't see anything. I don't see anything mangy. Why? The blood. It's been forgotten. That's what happens when you repent. That's what happens when you're mangy and you come to the lord you repent and you commit your life to christ you can all your sin the sex the drugs the alcohol you know husband number one two three four wife number three four five all these things and it's like i don't see anything you look clean to me you look at the bible and you read the parameters of the bible and you see yeah there's all this mess there's the sex drugs rock and roll the whole nine yards it's like okay a person comes to christ Looks pretty clean. Looks pretty pure. Why? It's the blood of the Lamb. It's Jesus. The work that He does to get you clean. You see? And how He cleans. Praise be to the Lord. Sin forgotten? You know how beautiful that is? Sin? Not just like, you know, sin is on the back burner now. No, no. Sin completely and totally forgotten as far as the east is from the west and you know i know people that can throw pretty far but nobody throws farther than the lord as far as the east is from the west in the sea of forgetfulness you can say oh lord the sex the drugs the ouija boards the occult all these different things and you know the previous marriages wife number two three four husband number two three four all these different things and the lord's just like straight up i don't see anything what are you talking about 
It's in the history. That's undeniable. It's 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 in the history books. That's undeniable. It is there. But as in the here and now, as for the here and now, no, I don't see anything. And that's pure before the Lord. I mean, when Paul would straight up write about all the sex and the alcohol, the extortion and the works of the flesh in Peter 2, they would straight up say like, such were some of you, past tense. You look at the church of Philippi, a beautiful, beautiful church. But then, don't forget, they were, they were former prisoners. Former prisoners. I mean, I don't want to get graphic or anything, but to be in prison, you got to do something to be in prison. And you look at the Philippian church, a beautiful church. I mean, the Philippian church, top-notch pastors. The, the teachers, the pastors, the overseers, top-notch. Because you look at the problems in Galatia. You look at the problems in Corinth. You look at all these problems. And then you look at Philippi. It's like, wow, you know what? You don't see that in Philippi. Why? They've grown. They've matured. Good pastors, good shepherds. But then you read the book of Acts and you're like, well, wait a second. These guys, these are all jailbirds. You see, these are like, this is a church of like jailbirds, former prisoners. And to go to jail, to go to prison, you got to do something. And so you look at the Philippian church, it's like, whoa, that's a, you you look at the, the history books of the lives of these people, you got straight up criminal activity. Whatever it is, in whatever way, shape, or form, whatever it was, I mean, you, you have crim- former criminal activity in the church of Philippi. When you look according to the flesh in the history books of the people, you see criminal activity that was in the lives of these people in Philippi. But then you look at the spirit, and what do you see in Philippi? Nothing. I don't see anything. Why? pure before the Lord. But then you look at Corinth and you see criminal activity according to the Spirit. Levin. You see? You see how the Lord works? You see how He cleans? So beautiful. So you hear us say, you know, hear us speak, you know, if you're divorced, you're on your second marriage or third marriage and they're still alive, the previous husband, the previous wife, if they're still alive, you need to repent. A lot of times the married people, they're like offensive. They're offensive. Like, well, how dare you say that? How dare you say that? I want to go to church and sing Kumbaya and I want to go to church and feel good about myself. Listen, the only way you and me, the only way we're going to feel good about ourselves in church, in fellowship, the only way, when the formula is right in you and me, the only way we're going to go to church and feel wonderful about ourselves, the only way is when you and me obey the word of God. It's the only way. If we disobey the word of God, we're going to feel pretty, pretty crummy in church. Why? Because the pastor is going to speak and we're going to be sitting there and the pastor is going to speak and it's going to hurt our souls. Why? Because it's sorrow, but it's godly sorrow. And when it's godly sorrow, we still have a choice. Do we humble ourselves and repent or do we exalt ourselves and leave? You see? Very important to understand. But then at the same time, in these last days, you see churches where, you know, say, for example, you have Christians who are in sin. They're in sin. 
They're living with their boyfriends, living with their girlfriends, sexually active. They get drunk on the weekends. They get drunk on Friday night, drunk on Saturday night, and then they go to church on Sunday. And they go to church and they feel good. They feel happy. Those pastors, they have no business at the pulpit. No business at the pulpit. Because a person who's in the flesh should not be comforted in their flesh. And that is the very thing that was happening in Corinth. You had all the sex, all the alcohol, the extortion, and the works of the flesh. And for three years, uncorrected, everybody just, oh yeah, let's, we feel really good about ourselves. Oh look, we're going to rejoice and sing and praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And Paul says, listen, you're rejoicing. You want to, you know, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You're rejoicing. It's not a good thing. How dare you say that, Paul? And then Paul explains why. Because there's leaven in the camp. There's leaven among you. How dare you say that? What do you mean, Paul? What is leaven? Okay, you want to do your sex? That's leaven. You want to do your alcohol? That's leaven. You want to do your extortion? That's leaven. How dare you, Paul? You're so mean. You're so mean. And then Paul, he doesn't speak to the greater body. He speaks to the remnant. And he says, okay, remnant, separate. You see? Very important. And, you know, a lot of times with Christians, Christians, you think Christians would be receptive and perceptive of truth. But a lot of times Christians don't like to be confronted with the word of God and flesh. Because a Christian could be doing the sex and the Ouija board on marriage number two, marriage number three, and the previous spouse is still alive. And when a pastor says, hey, you need to repent. You need to repent. How dare you say that? I'm a Christian. How dare you say I need to repent? I repented, you know, 10 years ago. You see? Very important to understand what the Word of God teaches. You and me, we have to be clean before the Lord. We have to be pure before the Lord. And a lot of times people turn that into works-based salvation. No, it's not works-based. It's obedience-based. We have to be pure before the Lord. You see? Not taking advantage of God's grace. And it's the Lord who sends the helper, the Pericles, capital H, the Holy Spirit. Intimacy with the Lord. And there is a confidence that saints can have, but it's a very specific formula. It's very easy. It's very, very easy, but it's very intricate. You see? Then you have Christians, you know, pastors who, you know, they, they coddle the Christians. And coddling is one thing for babies. But coddling adults, assumed adults, that's when it gets ugly. That's when you have adults who are babies, behave like babies. That's when you get arrested development and you have the coddlers, the so-called pastors and teachers. That's the very thing that was happening in Corinth. You see? And today, you have pastors themselves on their second and third and fourth marriage. And the previous wives are still alive. And these are men that expose themselves as incapable to equip. These guys are going to teach about marriage? When they're the ones who are the losers and failures, people say, oh, you're so mean, you're so mean. Okay, let's just, let's just break it down. Let's just break it down. A pastor's on his second marriage. That means his first marriage is what? A failure. You see? It also means that he's not winning in his first marriage. So what does that make it? A loser. 
You see, loser and failure. It's so simple. So simple. Such a man cannot equip you. You see, you cannot submit yourself to such a pastor. You cannot submit yourself to the loser and the failure. And the Bible explains and teaches us what that looks like. What to look for in a pastor. Because these are men who will care for your soul. You see? These are men who will care for your soul. And in verse 13. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But his disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now very interesting what we see here in verse 13. Jesus just taught the disciples about children. Remember in chapter 8? And, you know, the people, they bring their kids in here in verse 13. And we have this backdrop of what we learn in chapter 8. And it's the disciples here in chapter 10 that rebuke the children. Or, you know, when, when they brought little children, the disciples, they rebuke them. And in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Remember... He just got done teaching them about chapter 8, what we, what we study in chapter 8. And the Lord, He does have an expectation for you and me to grow and mature. And so we know why Jesus has the displeasure. Greatly displeased, it says in verse 14. Why? It's like, you know, did you, did you not hear what, was, what, what I said in chapter 8? I mean, you know, back in the day, the disciples, it wasn't, you know, this was written after the fact, but I mean, you know, there was an old chapter eight reference. Jesus had spoken these things, but there was no chapter eight reference. But picture Jesus just like, I just told you guys, I just told you guys about this. And so you see, knowing that Jesus has this expectation for you and me to grow, expectation for his disciples to grow, just like baby girl. Remember the example we gave with baby girl? Baby girl is two years old, says, mama, I'm thirsty. And what does mama do? Mama, okay, you know, get a glass, get, you know, put the little, the little cover on it, the little, the, the little sippy cup, you know, fill it with water, fill it with juice, you know, cover it. Here, baby girl, here's your drink. Drink away, baby girl, not thirsty anymore. Baby girl's 20 years old. It says, mama, I'm thirsty. What does mama do? Is mama going to do the same thing? No, that's disgusting. Baby girl, she's 20 years old. Mama, I'm thirsty. That's nice. Mama says, that's nice. Get it yourself. What do you want me to do about it? Get it yourself. Baby girl, 20 years old, you know, she's tall enough, opens the, the cupboard, grabs a glass, fills it with water, no more sippy cups, and she drinks away. You see? The same way parents have an expectation for children to grow and mature, so does our Lord. And Jesus just taught them about the children. And we see here, he sees his disciples. They rebuke those who brought the children. And Jesus sees it and he's displeased. Not just displeased. In verse 14, he's greatly displeased. You see, greatly displeased. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. So beautiful. I can straight up talk to a four-year-old. A four-year-old. And he or she would believe every single thing from the word of God because there's no filtering from the experiences in the world. Such beautiful, beautiful innocence. I mean, you straight up talk to a child about the things of the Lord and their eyes are big like saucers. Complete and total amazement at the beauty of our Lord. 
then you talk to a 25-year-old. You talk to a 30-year-old. You talk to a 40-year-old about the Lord. And you know what happens? It's not no more big saucers. Because what is said about the Lord and the Word of God, it's met with doubt. It's met with anger. There's much more to chip away at. Because of their time in the world, what it's done, it's calloused the heart and hardened the heart. And you know what? Satan knows this. Satan knows this. Why do you think we're seeing the kinetic war intensifying on children, on toddlers? You're seeing the war become kinetic. You see? Things that would have been unspeakable just 10 years ago, they're out in the open today on full display and approved approved of by a fallen culture and even approved of inside the church. You see, it's the last days. I say inside the church, but we have to understand when we account for the formula and the it is also written, it's approved of by the apostate church. You see, the innocence, the beautiful, beautiful innocence of children where faith becomes, it's, faith is super, super easy for children. You talk to a four-year-old about, you You open up the Bible and you have baby girl with you, you know, a four-year-old child. And it's so beautiful because, you know, they, they, they look at the letters and they can't read, but they look at the letters and you just read and you, you explain and it's, you, you, you don't have to, you, you can't speak in like, you know, the adult terms. You can't, you know, you, you know, the, the circumference of the perpendicular doohickey because babies don't understand that. You know, baby girl doesn't understand that, but you have to break it down and speak to the children. And you see baby girl with their big eyes like, What? What? Abraham looked up at the stars and the Lord showed him the stars. What? That happened? Like when when I lay on the grass and I look up at the stars too, I do that too. Do you mean God can talk to me too? Baby girl, absolutely. Absolutely, baby girl. And you look at a four-year-old child. Oh, it's so beautiful. Baby girl, she's like amazed, straight up amazed. Like I can look up at the star. You mean I can can speak to God and God can speak to me? Absolutely, baby girl. But then you you talk to a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old. What? The stars, you know, look, look, look at there's, you know, Cassiopeia, you know, they, they, they start to cite certain things. Did you know that the Milky Way does this and this and that? And, you know, the Hubble telescope reveals this. It's like they apply a logic and intellect and they, they've, their experiences in the world. They've, it's callous, the heart where baby girl, baby girl doesn't have that. A four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old child doesn't have that. And this beautiful innocence of a child and faith is incredibly easy for a child. And Satan knows that. And Satan corrupts these beautiful, beautiful souls. You see? And Jesus says here in verse 15, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. There was a time where, you know, in the span of my experience in ministry, 
There was a time when I gave the exact uh, the, the, uh, Bible study, the exact same Bible study, different language. I mean, not language, but different vernacular, so to speak, on different days in different settings, the exact same Bible study. One group was with adult men and then the other group was with kids, children. And I tell you the truth, with the kids, you could see their faith. It was palpable. You could see it. The things that, you know, with amazement, they would easily receive the truths that come from the word of God. But with the men, with the adult men, the truth of the word was met with the carnal filter of logic and intellect, you see, and a corrupted form of carnal reasoning. It's not to say that logic and intellect are bad. It's to say that logic and intellect must be dethroned. You see, and I want to say something to my young brothers and sisters in Christ, to my younger brethren and sistren. I want to say something to you. And maybe under the age of 13, we'll say you might be eight years old. You might be five years old. You might be four years old or somewhere around there. You might be 13. You might be 12. You might be 10. Do you feel looked down upon by the adults around you? Because in regard to receiving the kingdom of God, it's not you that needs to be like the adults. It's the other way around. It's them. They need to be like you. And that's what our Lord says. Assuredly, in verse 15, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. You're a little child and you feel like, you know, you're the runt of the family. You're the runt of the household. No, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Because you receive the kingdom of God as a little child. You see? And look what Jesus does with the kids here in verse 16. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. So beautiful. So beautiful to see our Lord and his love for the little ones. Remember what he says in, 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 in chapter 9 in our previous study, how whoever receives the children receives me. Or in the previous chapters, whoever receives the children receives me. But then he says, but also not me, but him who sent me. You see? And people who are calloused and hard with children, hard-hearted towards kids, understand what you're looking at. When Jesus says, whoever receives children receives me, but also not me, but him who sent me, you see, that's a beautiful formula. And then you see that, you know, pastors are, oh, get this kid out of here. Get this kid away from me. You know, he's just a child. What does he know? She's just a kid. What does she know? When you see that, understand what you're looking at. You see, is Jesus in him? Pastors, they think they're all high and mighty. Oh, get this kid, get this little pipsqueak out of here. Get her away from me. Get, get her, get him away from me. Oh, they're just, you know, you know, little tiny kids, you know. But look at me. I'm so awesome. This little child doesn't have the degrees and certificates. Didn't get, this little child doesn't have a master's in theology. Get this little child away from me. Is Jesus in such a person? Is the Father in such a person? You see, they reveal themselves. 
And so here in verse 17, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? In verse 18, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. Now, a little revealing of who Jesus is because he's soon, later on down the road in our studies, he's going to reveal that I and my Father are one. That will be revealed. But we see that he already reveals something here because he says no one is good but one, and that is God. And in verse 19, Jesus continues, he says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. All these things, you know, Jesus in verse 19 said, you know, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, murder, steal, false witness, defraud, honor your father and mother, you know. And the guy responds, I've done all these things. I've kept it from my youth, teacher. I've kept these from my youth. And in verse 21, then Jesus looked at him, loved him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Whoa. So let's look what's happening here. Here's a man who has great possessions. And, you know, having great, not just possessions, great possessions. And this requires a certain level of wealth and a certain level of assets to have not just possessions, but to have great possessions. It's like, you know, oh, you know, this guy has a car, but, you know, okay, you know, Anybody can have a car. Well, depending on where you are in the world, not just anybody can have a car, but, you know, okay, this guy has a car, but, okay, this car is, you know, straight up, you know, Lamborghini, you know, this is like, you know, a $500,000 car. So you have, it isn't just possessions, no, this is great possessions. And it does require wealth and assets, high levels. And this man tells Jesus that he's kept the law since he was a kid. Now, Remember our study in Ephesians. If you've been walking with us for a while, our study in Ephesians, we have to account for the it is also written. You see, when we study the the book of Mark, we're studying the book of Mark from a perspective that does account for the it is also written because the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And what's the word? Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And so we remember our study in the book of Ephesians and everything has to line up. Old Testament, New Testament, you know, major prophets, minor prophets. And in the early days, 2,000 years ago, give or take a couple years, they had things relatively easy. The, the religious leaders, they had things relatively easy because they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the minor prophets, and that's it. And those had to line up, and they did line up in pointing to Jesus Christ. But today, we have to account for several gospels. We have to account for uh, 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 the epistles. And so there's more that we have to account for. Because remember, we are a people of the new covenant. New covenant. 
And in our study in Ephesians in chapter 6, remember the first law with promise? And in the Ten Commandments, there are laws that pertain to a person's interaction with another. A person's interaction with another person. But there's four more. Laws that pertain to a person's interaction with God. And so we see like in, 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 in verse 19, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, the first law with promise. But remember, there's four more. And that's laws that pertain to a person's interaction with the Lord, with God. And this man of wealth comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus good teacher and rightfully so. And Jesus responds that only God is good. Only God is good. And the wealthy guy, the wealthy individual, he's kept the law. And this means that he has a certain understanding of the law. He knows the law. And Jesus doesn't dispute the six laws that pertain to man unto man. But it does mean that four are left. Laws that pertain to man unto God. And mind you, Jesus just said, only God is good. And it's the rich guy who acknowledges that and calls Jesus good teacher. And Jesus He's revealed himself to this wealthy individual. He's revealed himself. And later on, and you know, Jesus is going to say, I and my father are one. But right now, he's speaking to this particular wealthy person. As accounting for the it is also written, and we studied this in chapter 2. Remember, he is Lord of the Sabbath. And this places Jesus in a whole other stratosphere. Because there's only one. There's only one. Only one who can speak in this manner and live. I mean, if any other person spoke in this manner, no, he's dead. You see, there's only one who can speak like this. Very specific formula, very specific parameters. And that's the son of David. It's Messiah. There's only one who could speak and live, and it's God. You see? Remember the angel with Joshua? Remember? There's only one who could speak like that and live. Who was Joshua speaking to? Remember our study in the book of Joshua? And Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, he speaks about this man's idolatry. Yeah, he's wealthy. And the Lord speaks about his idolatry because the man had possessions, yes. Great possessions. But what's revealed is the possessions had him. It's idolatry. And yeah, there's the six laws where the guy said, yeah, I've kept these things since I was a kid. Six laws that pertain to man unto man. But with man unto God, when, when the Lord reveals as Lord of the Sabbath, there's only one who could speak and live. And Jesus revealing himself. He's later going to say, I and my father are one. But there's only one who could speak in such manner. And that's the son of David, Messiah, son of God. And so Jesus speaking in this manner, revealing that, yeah, there's these six laws. But what about the other four? When Jesus speaks about his idolatry. 
and Jesus revealing himself and for this guy to know of another law that not pertaining unto men, but another law that says, have no other gods before me. Say it, the Lord. You see? That's hardcore. And in the man, he goes away sad and in sorrow. Why? Because he loved his possessions more than God. And anything placed above the Lord is an idol. You see? It's an idol. And Jesus, he's calling him on it. He's calling him on his idolatry. Very interesting how Jesus mentions taking up the cross. He mentions taking up the cross and it's said before he takes up his own physical cross. But he's already walking toward that destination, carrying the unseen and telling the wealthy man to do likewise and follow me. You see, this is heavy what our Lord is saying here. This is heavy. Revealing himself. Because there's only one who can speak in such a manner and even live just like the angel with Joshua. There's only one where, because any other, it's death. But there's only one who can speak in such a manner and it's Jesus. And sometimes you see people, you know, regarding this particular, uh, the, the man and his possessions, and you see people, they sell all their things and they give it to the poor. And what they do, they attempt to recreate these events that we read about here, assuming that they're going to inherit eternal life. Oh, yeah, I'm going I'm to sell everything I have. I'm going to give it to the poor. And oh, yeah, the Bible says I'm going to have eternal life. But that's not what the Bible says. Because Jesus says this to a particular wealthy individual who was in the law. And the fulfillment of the law, there's only one who can speak in this manner and live. And that's Jesus. But understand that Jesus was speaking to a very particular individual in a very particular situation. And in no way am I being permissible on the topic of wealth accumulation. In no way, shape, or form. But understand, anything placed above God is absolutely an idol. Be it money, be it sex, be it drugs, be it alcohol, whatever it is, nothing can be placed above the Lord. Nothing. I mean, people can do that, but you know, that's, you know, hello, like a fire, you know, don't do that. You know, Christians don't do that. You can't do that. If you're a believer, you can't do that. I mean, if you do do that, you know, that you, number one, you're taking advantage of God, God's grace. Number two, the penalty for doing that, you know, it's, you know, uh, 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 it's the deceitfulness of sin. That's when you get into Hebrews 3. The deceitfulness of sin, that's when you get into uh, not being able to mature because you're taking advantage of God's grace. Remember Hebrews 5 and 6 where, you know, it is written that, you know, uh, 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 that we grow and we mature in Christ, you know, Lord permitting, if the Lord permits. Well, if you want to take advantage of God's grace, you're not going to grow. You're not going to mature. You see? And you take advantage of God's grace also when there's no love of the truth. You know, hello, strong delusion. 
person becomes delusional in their thinking, delusional in their doctrine, delusional in their works of the flesh. You see? I mean, you look at like Episcopals and Lutherans and Methodists, it's like, whoa, that's delusional. That's delusional. Well, it's delusional for a reason. No love of the truth. Because if there was love of the truth, they would in no way permit such a thing. The doctrine that they have established for themselves and teaching as doctrine. You know, it is doctrine, but they teach it as a doctrine, but it's not biblical doctrine. It is not sound doctrine, you see? Very important to understand. And you see, Christians, they try to recreate what's happening here in Mark 10. Oh, yeah, I'm going to sell everything because the Bible says I'm going to inherit eternal life. I'm going to sell everything, give it to the poor, and I'm going to inherit eternal life. No, no, no. Jesus says this to this particular individual who was guilty of idolatry. And for him in that situation, yes, it was applicable. Very important to understand. And sometimes you see Christians who shun the wealthy even. They say, look, you know, Jesus sent the wealthy man away, so I'm going to do it too. You know, the wealthy, you know, get them out of here. But Jesus doesn't do that. The door is open to the wealthy. You know, G Jesus says to the wealthy guy, no, follow me. Follow me. Remember, God is no respecter of persons. The Lord, he doesn't care about bank accounts. He doesn't care about fancy cars. He doesn't care about, you know, fancy clothes, expensive shoes. He doesn't care about any of that. God is no respecter of persons. And remember, neither are his vessels. Neither are his servants. But it's the wealthy man here in Mark 9. He made his choice and he walked away. Jesus told him, no, take up your cross, follow me. And Jesus, you know, when he says that, the wealthy man, he heard that and he makes a choice. Nope. I love my possessions more. You see? Then Jesus, in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is, he says in verse 23. And then verse 24, and the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He says in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of an needle than it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Whoa. You see Jesus here? Jesus he doesn't reject the wealthy. Remember, he's the one who says to this wealthy guy, follow me. But let me tell you something. Wealthy people, they have a major problem in life. Major, major problem in life. They trust in riches. And today, you know, in 2023 AD, you see inflation. You see the rising cost of everything. But the wealthy, it doesn't impact them. It doesn't hurt them. You know, you go to the grocery store and it's like, wow, you know, you have your family. You have you go to the grocery store, you got to feed your family. And then, you know, you look at jobs and it's like, you know, okay, I have this job and my income is, you know, X amount of dollars. I go to the grocery store and I was living in my within my means and, you know, X amount of dollars. It, it kept us afloat. But now with inflation, I got my job and I'm still making X amount of dollars the same. But, 
everything's increasing, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I can't pay my light bill. I got, I got, I got, you know, I, 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 I can't buy these certain foods anymore. Or, you know, we got to start eating less because, you know, the, the, the income doesn't accommodate the, the, the price, the, the, this inflation, which is, don't forget, it's prophetic too. It's, this is, we're living in prophetic times, you know, do not hurt the oil and wine. These are prophetic events. These are things that the Lord does to shake the world. We see that in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament and we see it still today. These are things that the Lord, you know, blight I gave you, yet you still did not return to me. Remember the minor prophets? And so we see these prophetic events today and you see like, well, I go to the grocery store and I can't buy this or, you know, you know, my, my kids want to eat, but, you know, we got to eat less and all these things and On top of that, you see a defunct church. You see a defunct church. And then people turning to government. Oh, these politicians, they're gonna, they're gonna help me. I'm gonna put my trust in the politicians. They're gonna help. You see, there's no trust in the Lord. And for the wealthy people, no trust in the Lord. Because they trust in riches. And Jesus says how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. The wealthy with inflation, no, it doesn't hurt them. It, in fact, you know, it works to their advantage because, you, you know, in the good old United States, you know, I presently teach, you know, live and teach in the United States of America presently. But in the United States of America, you know, there's the tax laws, there's corporate laws, property laws, diversification of assets and financial vehicles to shelter and maneuver assets. And, you know, the wealthy, they have teams of people, teams of people. They do this for them. They, 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 they allocate and distribute. They do all these different things. You know, the rich person gets ill. They got the best doctors. They got the best doctors. They have the best attorneys. And it's very difficult for the wealthy to see through the fog of wealth and see the Lord. It's so difficult that our Lord says that it's more easy for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than for them to enter the kingdom of God. Great, great, great difficulty. But let me tell you something. If you're wealthy, you're listening. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's very difficult. But it's not impossible. We see instructions in the epistles, the letters of Paul, even Peter, James too. We see these instructions for wealthy people. And so you have Christians who hate the wealthy. They, they look at Mark 10 and they say, oh, you know, Jesus sent the, the wealthy guy away. No, he didn't. The wealthy guy walked away. You see? Jesus says, no, you know, you sell all your things, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. No, come on. Jesus didn't send him away. No, he walked away. You see? And you have Christians today say, oh, well, Jesus sent him away. Jesus sent the rich guy away, so I'm going to send the rich people away too. I don't want nothing to do with the wealthy. And there's this chasm that exists between the poor and wealthy. That's carnal. 
That's a carnal thing. You see it in the world, you see it in politics, and you see it in the church. But among the remnant? No, there's biblical instruction for the wealthy people. And Jesus, he's telling the disciples about this great difficulty. And we, we see it in, you know, when, 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 when uh, 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 the, the, the rules for uh, uh, wealthy people, what Paul says, we see Barnabas. Remember, his name was Joseph. And it was the apostles who, who renamed him Barnabas, a man of wealth, multiple properties, commercial real estate. Wealthy. He was wealthy. But he walked through the eye of the needle. So it's very, very... If you're listening and you're wealthy, it is very, very, very difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is not impossible. And if you're a person of wealth, male or female, if you're a person of wealth... Go to thewayunderground.com and go to the area for wealthy people. Very important to understand. And our Lord Jesus says it's more easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Very, very difficult. But it is not impossible. So if you're wealthy, go to thewayunderground.com and listen to the studies for wealthy people. And walk through the eye of the needle. It's very difficult, but it's not impossible. Walk through the eye of the needle. You see? And here in verse 26, And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. This is what, we see this in the book of Acts. We see men, women, boys, girls, old people, everybody being saved. Poor people, wealthy people, and everybody in between. The low end of the socioeconomic uh, uh, scale all the way to the high end. Remember when Paul was before the political establishment? And Paul, you, 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 I'm, I'm almost going to be a Christian. You almost convinced me to be saved. And Paul just holds up his hands with his chains and he's like, I wish you were like me or even better than me, with the exception of these chains. You see, praise be to the Lord. The good news goes everywhere. Rich, poor, male, female, boys, girls, and even the old people. The seed goes forth. The good news goes forth. And in verse 28, then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Now let's pause here for a moment. Notice how Jesus tells us that now in this time, he tells us this is what happens. Now, remember what he said in chapter 3? 
in chapter 3, I mean, if you haven't listened to our entirety and are studying the book of Mark, make sure you do that. But if you have heard our study in chapter 3, remember what Jesus, who, you know, when they said, oh, you know, Jesus, your, your, your mother, your brothers are here. And he's like, who, who are they? And Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So to give an example of what, you know, in, 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 in verse 29 and 30, to give an example, you know, let's say you and me and all who listen. Let's say we reside in a huge metropolis, a huge metropolis, say like Los Angeles, California. We reside in a, in a big city, a huge metropolis. And the population of people, it's huge. The, pop, the population of the metropolis and the surrounding areas is huge. A whole bunch of people. And within this populace, within these people, there's the mega churches. But as for us, you and me and all who listen, we're a little bit different. And a lot a bit different. And we, yes, we all have our separate houses and separate families and separate neighborhoods. And we have a deep, profound love of the truth. And so much so, our love of the truth, profound love of the truth, so much so that people think we're crazy. Even those in the megachurches, even those in our own homes, even those of our biological families, they all think we're crazy. But then there's an announcement. Hey, we got a warehouse. Hey, we got a warehouse. And it's a place where we can all fellowship as one body. So we have this big metropolis the size of Los Angeles, California. A lot of people, the population. And within this populace of people, you got mega churches, a whole bunch of mega churches. You got everything, but we're different. The love that we have for the truth is deep. It's profound. And then the announcement comes, hey, we got a warehouse. And it's a place where we can all fellowship as one body, just straight up love feast, love feast. The formula is right, straight up love feast, accounting for babies, everything, beautiful. And it's where we study the word together, physically together. We study the word there. We fellowship with one another, straight up love feast. And people think we're crazy, even those in our own homes, our own families, but we leave them and we fellowship together in a warehouse. You know, we leave our our homes, our families, we leave our neighborhoods and we all gather in this one warehouse in this huge metropolis the size of Los Angeles where they got millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people. Complete with mega churches and everything. But we got our little tiny warehouse and it's where we fellowship. It's where we gather and we have our biological families, relatives, And we fellowship in this warehouse. We leave biological and we enter spiritual. We leave biological family and we enter spiritual family. We leave Adam and we enter Christ. We leave biological family and we receive a hundredfold of the better family, the family of faith. You see, and the people thought us to be crazy and now they attack us and now we're on the receiving end of persecutions. And that's what we see here in verse 29 and 30. That's what happens in this life. You see, 
That's what happens in this life because, you know, Jesus answered, you know, in verse 28, Peter says, oh, we've left all and followed you. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. It's like you and me, we leave the biological in the big metropolis and we go and gather in this little tiny warehouse and we have love feast. You see? And we now receive a hundredfold because, wow, look at our family. But it's a different family. It's the better family of faith. It's like, wow, you know, I left mother, father, brother, sister. I left all these different things, uncle, aunt. And then we meet in this little warehouse and look, I got brothers and sisters. You see, I got brothers and sisters, but it's not biological. It's better. It's of the faith, faith in Christ, heirs of Abraham. The promise of God unto Abraham. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. You see? And so we see in verse 30, who shall not receive a hundredfold. That's you and me. Like, wow, in our, in our warehouse. Wow, look at, look, at, look at my family of faith. Look at your family of faith in this little warehouse, in this big metropolis, the size of Los Angeles, California, Southern California. You see? And we have this family of faith. And Jesus says in verse 30, now and that, you know, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. But then also he says, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. You see, now we're in our warehouse and people start to hate us. Well, you, you think you're better than us? Look, we have our mega church over here. You think you're better than us? Look, we have our mega church over here and you got your, your little tiny warehouse. Look at your, look at your dumb little warehouse. Look, we got our mega church over here. Look, we got our, you know, Pastor Osteen. Oh, look, we got, you know, Pastor Pastor Joyce Meyer over here. And you got your little tiny stupid warehouse. You see? Now come the persecutions. And then in verse 30, at the end of verse 30, look what our Lord says. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life. Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord, God's promise of eternal life within a very specific formula and a very specific way. What do we see? The narrow path. The narrow path. In verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You see? The way God views, it's not like what we see in the world. I mean, when you look at Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus and the rich man, What's the rich guy's name? I mean, today, you know, you have like, you know, uh, the, the multi-billionaires. You have the, you know, the Bezos guy with the Amazon. You have the uh, the Musk with the rocket ships, you know. And you got all these billionaires, you know. Millionaires, those are like the little guys now. But now you have the multi-billionaires, you know. You have all these, the fat cats. And everybody knows their name. But who knows the names of the poor people? You see? Just the very fact that we see Lazarus and the rich man and nobody knows the rich guy's name. What does that tell you about how God sees? We don't know his name, but we know the name of beautiful, beautiful Lazarus. We know the name of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Lazarus. Now, in the flesh, in the flesh, I mean, if, if we were to go back in the day, who would know the name of Lazarus? If we, you know, back in the day, everybody would know the name of the rich guy. You see? But whose name do we know today? The name of Lazarus. 
the name of the one who was rejected by the world. Now in verse 32, we see this. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now remember several chapters ago how we see how Jerusalem, it's where the heavies are. Remember we gave the example like, you know, the police come to your door and the street cops come to your door. That's one thing. Now, you know, that's serious. You know, like, okay, answer the door. You know, what do you need, officers? You're not going to help you, officers. But if the feds come, they knock on the door and they're in their suits. You know, they're not in like the, the, the street, the, the, what the street cops wear. You know, they're straight up in the, the, the suits and they show you, you know, and they're not the, the local feds. No, they're from Langley. You know, the, the heavies come. And so here you see the, the, the heavies from Jerusalem, you know, we see they make these distinctions. You know, the, the, the religious leaders in Nazareth, that's one thing. But from Jerusalem, whoa, those are the heavies. And so here you see the disciples, they're following Jesus, but at the same time, they're amazed. And then they're also, they're afraid because they're going like, you know, this is different territory now. Now they're, you know, in Jerusalem. You see, and you know, the religious establishment, they're sprawled everywhere. There's a religious establishment in Nazareth and the surrounding areas. But when you get into Jerusalem, it's different caliber, different caliber. You know, like, you know, the religious establishment, they're everywhere. But the hardcore, the hardcore religious establishment, you know, they're straight up in Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus is going. And that's where the disciples follow. And they're afraid. Understandably so. They're afraid. And we see here in verse 32, then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Verse 33, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Now, this is something that we see happen when the religious establishment condemns our Lord and it's the Gentiles who apply the world's brand of justice, you see, the Romans. Because remember, you know, Pontius Pilate, you know, hey, you know, I, I can free him. They say, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Here is your king, king of the Jews. And they shout out, we have no king but Caesar. What do you want me to do with them? Crucify him, crucify him. Who did the actual crucifying? The Romans, the Gentiles, you see, both Jew and Gentile, the crucifixion of our Lord, both Jew and Gentile, you see, and all of man will give an account, you see, all of man will give an account. And you see, wow, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish. You see? And Jesus, he's explaining that he's going to be betrayed, you know, by the chief priests and the scribes. But then, you know, they're going to condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They're the, the actual executioners. In verse 34, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. This is something the disciples, they're going to forget that our Lord will rise again. And I don't want to be harsh with the disciples. I don't want to be harsh with them at all because it's true that they forget. They walk away. Peter denies him. It does happen. And I don't want to gloss over that like, you know, like it's no big deal. No, it's a huge deal. 
It's also fulfillment of prophecy. And it does happen. But we cannot forget, we cannot be removed from the sheer terror and horror of the events that happened to our Lord. It's terrible. Like, words can't describe. It's like, to say it's like terror, to say, it, 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 it's, to say it's a, a horrible thing to happen, I mean, that's an understatement. Because today we have like capital punishment in certain jurisdictions and areas. We have capital punishment, punishment. And people, you know, they're dead quickly, you know, like relatively quickly, you know. But back in the day, no, the Roman government, the Roman government, no, they wanted to send a clear message through the, the punishment that they doled out. They were sending a clear message. Okay, you, you want to be a criminal? You want to be a thief? Okay, this is what's going to happen to you. You want to you wanna rape? You want to murder? Okay, this is what's going to happen to you. They sent a clear message. You know, you want to mess around with our laws? Okay, this is what's going to happen to you. And they did that with Jesus. Innocent. He was innocent. And they did that with him. The death penalty that was the that was upon him. It wasn't like you know capital punishment today, where you know you they get the injection and then like you know like a couple minutes and you know it's it's over. You know the, the electric chair, you know, a couple seconds and it's over. But back in the day, no, it was. Torturous, torturous, extremely drawn out, extremely torturous, extremely painful. And the people had every reason to fear the Romans. They had every reason to fear the Romans. And we can look at this and, and wonder, you know, how could the disciples forget that Jesus would rise again? Because he tells them, like here in verse 34, the third day he will rise again. And it's like, well, how could the disciples forget? But understand, when people are in extreme environments where death isn't likely, death is probable, death, death is an eventuality given that extreme environment, you'd be surprised. People forget a lot of things. I mean, sometimes you see people, they have like, you know, accidents, you know, they, 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 they like, you know, they're so scared that they're so terrified. They're so, so full of horror that their body functions. They just stop. They, they have, you know, they have accidents, you know, they, they go to the bathroom, you know, while they're in, in, in their clothing, you know, and they forget a lot of things. When people are in extreme environments of sheer terror people don't function the, the mankind isn't designed to function in environments of sheer terror you see mankind is not designed for that we're not made that way because that's not what god intended remember paradise the garden of eden paradise was lost you see and the only way paradise is found again is only 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 in Christ Jesus. And in extreme environments of straight up horror and terror, where death is highly, highly, highly probable, people forget. 
things. People forget functions. People can't speak. People are just in total shock. And so the disciples hearing Jesus in Mark 10, they hear Jesus say, you know, in, in verse 34, you know, not to gloss over it. These are heavy truths, you know, they're, they're, the, the, regarding the Son of Man, regarding himself. They're going to mock him. They're going to scourge him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to kill him. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. And when we see the end of the Gospels, you see how the disciples are like, wow, how could they forget? How could they forget? Well, we cannot remove ourselves from the terror of the, the turn of events that happen. So much so that the disciples, they forget. They forget. And you know who remembers? The women. The beautiful, beautiful women. The men, they were so scared. And understandably. Understandably, they were so scared that they were like, you know, hiding. But the women, you know, I don't want to be true. You know, I follow Jesus and I don't want to be true. I don't want to die like he died. And so, you know, we're going to hide over here. But the women, no, they were at the tomb. The beautiful, beautiful women. Courage. You see? And this is something that the last day saints, we have to keep this in mind. Because as we approach the fullness of the Gentiles... The present perilous times that we're in, they're going to grow worse and worse and worse. Horrors and terrors, they're going to be at our doorstep. You see, some countries are going to be better off than others. You know, some countries, that the, the, the terrors and horrors, it's already here. The persecuted church, the cost of being a Christian, doesn't matter if you're a man, women, child, they don't care. You know, you're a Christian, boom, hey, you're dead. There are parts of the world today where the cost of being a Christian is very heavy. In North Korea, Christians in North Korea, they can't share the gospel like, you know, in like in America. They can't share the gospel like is shared in, in European countries. No, they have to be very, they can't tell their children. Imagine parents who can't tell the, their children about Jesus. They cannot tell their children about Jesus. You know why? Because the child is so innocent. You think, okay, the child would be able to receive Jesus. And yes, that is true. But the child doesn't understand if the child goes to the school, the public school, or, you know, the schools that are in, you know, the government's public school. But if the child goes to school and says to the teacher, yeah, you know, we were praying last night. Boom, the teacher has a response, an obligation, or else he, he or she would be killed or you know, sent to prison. That the, the, the teacher then has a responsibility to report to the governing bodies that, hey, this kid's a Christian. This, kid's, this kid lives in a home where Jesus is the Lord of that home. And so the authorities come in, they arrest, they kill, they put in the prison camps, they do that. You know, men, women, and the children. Children with life sentences. And so parents, they can't tell their children about Jesus. Picture that. If you're a parent, you can't tell your children about Jesus. Yes, Jesus, the, the child, baby girl, would easily receive the, the beautiful, beautiful truth, such innocence, but so innocent that when baby girl goes to school, baby girl doesn't understand, you know, the teacher is antichrist, against Christ. You see? The teacher is antichrist. So baby girls goes to, you know, tell her friends about Jesus and, you know, the teacher hears it. Boom. Empty house that night. Why? They've been arrested. 
So there are parts in this world where persecution is off the charts. It's already happening. But it's also entering parts of the world, areas of the world where it's been light or in some cases never seen. But in for such a time as this, we're seeing it increase more and more and more and more. And these are things that the last day saints, we have to remember. At the perilous times, they're going to get worse and worse and worse. So much so, it might be so terrible, or it's going to be so terrible, that saints are going to forget the promises of God. You see? But the remnant, we cannot forget the promises of God. We cannot forget evacuation. Remember 2 Thessalonians in our, in our study in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians? We cannot forget uh, the, the evacuation. Very important to understand. Leadership matters because pastors, the Lord has these pastors to teach, to guide, to pour in, and also to protect. Very important to understand. Not to suggest that, you know, if we were, if we, if we were you know, 50 years ago, that it's okay to forget. Not to suggest that, but in these last days, Great peril is going to befall the earth, and it's already happening. And so Jesus, he's telling the disciples about his death. They're in Jerusalem, and he's telling them that, yeah, they're going to, they're going to kill the Son of Man. But on the third day, he will rise again. And in verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's pretty bold. You know, they do, do for us whatever we ask. It's pretty bold. But then in verse 36, we see something. He said, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is, for, it is for those for whom it is prepared. You see, in Jesus here, he starts to teach us about very specific blueprints. Verse 41, look at in, in verse 41. And when, he, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. You see, our Lord teaching us about these very specific blueprints. He teaches, teaches us about servanthood. You see, 
Jesus does later say, you know, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Because remember, the friends don't wonder what the master is doing. They do not wonder what the master is doing. Remember the example we gave? If you and me were servants in a master's house, you know, in the, in the era of the law, you and me were servants in the master. It's our day one. We're our day, first day of being servants unto the master. And we don't know anything about him. We know a little bit about him, but not the 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 the, the personal things, the personal uh, you know intricacies of his preferences. And so, remember, I'm the cook, and you know, you're the you're the you're the the the, the, the server. And so, I cook, you know, and you're the server. And then you, you 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 know, I tell you, hey, you know, you know, breakfast is ready. And then you come in, you grab the plate, you put it down. And then you see where you put the fork. Our master, he picks up the fork and puts it on the other side. You thought he was a lefty. No, he's a righty. So you put the fork on the left and you see him pick it up with the with his right hand and he puts it on his right side. So now you know, okay, our master is a righty. Then you see him with the, the salt and pepper. He puts some salt. He does the pepper and all these things. And, you know, you come and tell me, you know, hey, you, know, you, 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 you didn't salt it enough. You didn't put enough seasoning in it. And so we're learning. We're servants, but we're learning. And then the master says, hey, pull up a chair, have a seat. And we or me were we were we were planning on eating our meal after our master and we were gonna go eat, you know, in a separate area, but our master, you know, because you know, we have brothers and sisters, you know, they also serve master, different masters, and you know, their masters are cruel to them. Cruel to them. But our master is different. Our master says, Hey, pull up a chair. Pull up a chair. And so we pull up a chair. We're kind of like, you know, amazed, like you know, like kind of scared too, like what what's happening here? Because, you know. Is this, is, is this a trick? You know, is it, is it, he starts to talk to us. He starts to talk to us. And remember, it's our, it's our first day on the job. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, so, you know, you know, let me tell you about your your accommodations, he says to us. And he says, oh, yeah, I got, you know, some space. So, you know, you, you can sleep over here and sleep over there. And then, you know, we're, we finish eating and, you know, we go up and look at, you know, where we're going to be sleeping. And it's like, like, what, what like... He's treating us like we're his own children. Like what? The, we thought we we're gonna be, you know, in 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 the back area. We thought we were gonna be over here with like you know the uh, the, the 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 storage facility or something. But you know, like well, this is like on the other side of this wall. That's where he sleeps. It's like the similar accommodations. It's like he's treating us like like he loves us. And so it's the next meal, and you put the. Utensils on the right side. Now that you know he's not a lefty, you thought he was a lefty, but you realize he's not a lefty, and so he's right-handed. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, we're yeah, we're servants. But then, in the course of time, we realize, wow, he loves us. And then I look at you, you look at me, and you're like, wait a second, you know what? We love him too. We love him too. We like this. Wow, you know, our brothers, sisters, aunts, you know, cousins, you know, or whatever, you know, they had masters, you know, when they were growing up, they had masters, but their masters were cruel to them. Look, they got scars to prove it. But us, it's like we're falling in love with our master. You see? And then years pass. Years pass and it's time, you know, our, our, our time obligation of servanthood, it's over. And we say, master, you know what? I know we can leave and go back to our families, but Master, we love you so much and we want to be bondservants. Can we be your bondservants? One thing to, to, to desire to be a bondservant, but for the Master to say, yes. 
I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, hey, can we be your bondservant? And like, you know, the master says, hey, you know what? No, you know, you serve your time and you're done. No, the master says, you know what? You love me. I love you too. Yes, you can be my bondservants. And so they take the 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 awl and, the, you know, we go to the doorpost and boom, we get our ears pierced on the, the, the right side. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, we're servants in the master's house. But we're, we have pierced ears. And you know, so when guests of the master come and they realize like, oh my goodness, that's, that's a bond servant. That's not just a run of the mill servant. No, that's a bond servant. That's a bond servant. That means that the person that the pierced ear, the bond servant, no, that means that he loves his master. That means that she loves his master and the master loves them. It's like family. You see? And it's very true that Jesus, he's going to say, you know, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends because friends don't wonder what the master is doing. Just like, you know, you thought he was lefty. No, he's a righty. I thought he liked a little bit of seasoning. You know, he likes, he's, he's like the, the sea, he likes spicy, you know? And so we start to learn about the master and then we fall in love with the master and the master loves us. And within this construct, our master, he shows us by his own example. When I say master, I speak of Jesus. Our master, he shows by his own example, servanthood. Servanthood. You see? It's a very peculiar thing for a person to desire slavery. To desire being a servant, to desire being a slave, for a person to desire chains. But yet, this is something we see in the lives of the apostles. Patterns for emulation. Remember what Paul writes about? Patterns for emulation. And we see Paul, who later says in the epistles, he later says that he's an ambassador. Wow, an ambassador sounds prestigious, sounds prestigious. Wow, he's an ambassador. Cool. But then he says, an ambassador in chains you see and for the longest time i always thought a person's chains to satan that they were broken at the wrist or the ankle of a person wow you know a person's like you know uh, uh in bondage and in sin be it the sex the drugs the alcohol the whiskey you know the ouija boards the occult and the extortion and all kinds of different things and a person is chained to Satan. I always thought that when, you know, a person becomes free in Christ, which is a beautiful thing. I always thought that those chains were broken at the wrist, at the ankle. No longer chained to Satan. But I don't think this anymore. I don't think that way anymore. Because in the course of time, as a believer grows and matures, a believer not chained to Satan. Those chains were broken, absolutely. But as a person grows and matures, a person can look down and realize and see, wow, the chains are still there. They're still on the wrists and on the ankles. And the chains don't break on our end. The chains break on Satan's end where a person is free in Christ, no longer chained to Satan, and that is a beautiful thing. But then a person in the course of time may come to a day where he or she picks up those chains and gives them to Jesus. Here, Lord. Yes, I'm free to be free. But no, Master. I desire to be your 
bondservant. Do with me as you wish. Here am I. You see? Bondservant. And Jesus explaining to the disciples here in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see? And in verse 46, now they came to Jericho. So they passed through Jerusalem. They passed through Jerusalem. But remember what Jesus tells them in Jerusalem. Because they're going to come back to Jerusalem. Under the very conditions of terror and horror, it's going to be a very frightful series of days, the events that happen. And Jesus is telling them in advance. And he's already told them in advance. Remember when Peter rebuked Jesus? He says, oh, you know, far be it from you. No, that's not happening. Not on my watch. And Jesus rebuked him. Multiple times the Lord told them the series of events that would transpire in the course of time. And so in verse 46, now they come to Jericho and they just pass through Jerusalem and they come to Jericho. As he, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. In verse 47, when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus, in verse 49, so Jesus stood and stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, 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 that I may receive my sight. And this translates as Master. Master, that I may receive sight. In the Gospel of Matthew, the people were wondering, you know, is this the son of David about Jesus? You know, is, is Jesus the son of David? That's what, when you read the account of the gospel of Matthew, it was the people, they were all, you know, the multitudes of people. Is this the son of David? Is this really the Messiah? Is this the son of David? And it was the Pharisees who resist, resisted the people. They resisted the people. They said, no, this isn't the son of David. He has Beelzebub. And Bartimaeus here, he's blind. Forget what the Pharisees say. Forget them. He just cries out, Son of David, Son of David. And the people, remember in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the people were speaking of Jesus. Is this the Son of David? Is this the Son of David? And the Pharisees, no. He has Beelzebub. He's not the Son of David. He has Beelzebub. And this blind guy, Bartimaeus, beautiful, beautiful Bartimaeus, just straight up crying out, Son of David, Son of David, calling Jesus Master. How beautiful is it to see that, you know, we see in verse 52, we see here, then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. You see? And these are things we see in the Gospels and in the entirety of the Bible, how the Lord rewards faith. Our Lord is a rewarder of faith, Old Testament, New Testament, and still today. You see this blind guy, formerly blind, Bartimaeus. 
son of David, son of David, and he receives his sight. But then you see the Pharisees. He's not the son of David. He's not the son of David. He has Beelzebub. And they become blind. You see? Old Testament, New Testament, and still today. Our Lord rewards faith. In verse 52, go your way. Your faith has made you well. How beautiful is this? To understand and know and know and understand that still today, our Lord is a rewarder of your faith. To the beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.